0: This is Polar Geopolitics, a podcast analyzing the global and regional implications of rapid environmental change and rising international interest in the Arctic
1: and Antarctica. Hi, this is Eric Paglia in Stockholm, Sweden. Like many of us that are interested in the geopolitics of the polar regions, the first thing I thought of when I heard about the stranded cargo ship blocking the Suez Canal was whether this would be a turning point in the long-awaited expansion of Arctic shipping. If one ship stuck for six days could disrupt global trade the way the Ever Given did, wouldn't shipping companies and other stakeholders, including powerful states, start looking at other options, such as the Northern Sea Route, to reduce the risk associated with choke points like the Suez Canal? To get some insight from a shipping industry expert on the future of Arctic shipping in the wake of the incident in the Suez Canal, here in Episode 35, I'll be speaking with Lars Jensen. CEO of Sea Intelligence Consulting in Copenhagen, Denmark. I start by asking Lars whether he sees the ever-given as the turning point that will make the Arctic a viable alternative to traditional global shipping routes. I have
0: definitely seen headlines that that might be the result, but I remain very much unconvinced that that's the case. There's a number of reasons for that. Uh, I think we need to distinguish between what the potential future is for Arctic shipping, and what the fallout of the Suez Canal is. Uh, first of all, I think the longer-term ramifications of the Suez Canal are way overblown. Uh, clearly, there are short-term ramifications of the Suez Canal closure. You've got a lot of operational disruptions right now. It's going to take several months to work those kinks out of the system. That's, of course, a clear impact on the market right now. However, we also need to consider that it is a relatively normal development in the Suez Canal to see these massive ships go through time and time again. And this almost always happens without incident. And rather than see the Suez incident as a major problem, what I see is this is more testament to the resilience of the supply chain. The fact that this happens so extremely rarely, and when it finally did happen, Well, it was six days, then it's open again. Uh, It's causing some delays, but it is not a major problem. So I don't see a very long-term structural shift in any parts of shipping because of what happened to the Suez Canal. That goes both for the Arctic as well as for anything else. Then if we then take a look at the Arctic, uh, this falls into a longer-term, I'm not sure I would call it trend, but a longer-term view that Will we see more shipping take the Arctic route? And my perspective, of course, is principally from container shipping because that is my experience. So whereas I know there has also been shipments of bulkers and tankers up there, especially there are Russian activities in northern Siberia that use some of these vessels, that's not my usual remit. So I will take a specific view here on container shipping. And if you look at container shipping specifically, There are a number of reasons why it is highly unlikely that the northern route will become an attractive alternative. Several reasons. First of all, if you look at the trade where this would be interesting, that would principally from a distance perspective be from Northeast Asia to North Europe. So that would be your South Korea, Japan. It would be the Bohai Rim area around China. And then going up to places like Hamburg, Bremerhaven, Rotterdam, and the like. Right. The vessels right now that service this trade, they are the ultra large container ships. They are almost all of them the 18 to 24,000 TEU ships. And whilst there is indeed a slightly shorter sailing distance on the Arctic route, it is not that much shorter. And there is realistically no way in the short-term future that you're going to see anybody risk a 20,000 TEU vessel going up into the Arctic. Mind you, these are neither ice class nor anything else. And you are carrying to the tune of a billion dollars' worth of cargo on these ships. So they are not going to be moved up there. So if you're going to see container vessels take the Arctic route, they are going to be much, much smaller. Do you have a container vessel that could go up there? Absolutely, yes. Have you seen a few trial shipments? You have. There was, uh, I believe it was Musk that sent one on that route a few years ago, not because they necessarily want to service the route, but it was an ICE-class container vessel. Anyhow, they took delivery out of a yard. So as a trial shipment, why not send it that way to try it out? But these ships are generally feeder ships. So rather than having twenty thousand TEU, you're maybe talking two to three thousand TEU vessels. And if you look at the unit cost of that, there's absolutely no saving in going around that when you compare to a twenty thousand TEU ship going through Suez. So that's so that's one argument why in the near-term future that is highly unlikely to happen. Then you could of course look at a much longer-term future and say, well. What if we are looking, say, 10, 15, 20 years into the future, and you have much more of an ice-free summer than what you what you have now? Could you conceivably see a market where you might build, say, 10, 15,000 TEU container ships, like ice class, and then send them on a route up there? Conceivably, you could, of course, think about that, but then you run into two other issues that are important when you look at container shipping networks. One of the reasons why the Asia-Europe trade is such a good trade to operate on is because it offers you the ability to service many different markets. When I'm sending a large container vessel from South Korea or northern China to North Europe, it services more than just those two markets. These vessels will tend to have a stopover in places like Dubai or in Salala in Oman, Or in Jeddah, in Saudi Arabia, they will stop over by the Suez Canal, they will stop over in Al Jazeera. The reason they stop over there is these vessels effectively also serve markets in East Africa, in West Africa, in the Middle East, and in the Indian subcontinent, which makes this uh, backbone trunk route extremely flexible and useful for, for feeder services. If I was to send a service from northern China to Rotterdam on the axe route, I would not have that flexibility. I would only be able to move cargo from north China to north Europe. And whilst that might be attractive for some of the cargo, it also robs me of a lot of market potential. So again, from that perspective, not necessarily too attractive. Furthermore, as a liner shipping company, I need to provide a weekly service 52 weeks per year. So even though I might have ice-free summers, uh, it's still many, many decades into the future before I would have ice-free winters. So you're back to, at best, I might be able to do this as a seasonal service. And as a seasonal service, that would be during summer. Fortunately, that coincides with the normal peak season of cargo from Asia to North Europe, uh, which is basically the season uh, where you're moving all the Christmas goods. But here again, you have a challenge. The cargo that moves is typically high-value consumer commodities where it is imperative for the importers that they can rely on this actually arriving. And you need to be absolutely certain that you're not suddenly being held up with this cargo because maybe there was slightly more ice or you had drifting ice coming down. So, so all of these are a lot of reasons why, at least when you look at the main routing from Asia to Northern Europe, I have a hard time seeing in the short-term future, and short-term here I would say is the next 10 to 15 years, that you would see any material shift of the liner shipping services that today go through Suez that would shift to the Arctic route.
1: Now you're you're obviously coming at it from a, a shipping industry perspective w- with many years' experience that you have, and uh, the the economic basis. The other perspective that is often uh, discussed in some of these Arctic uh, geopolitics circles is the political and geopolitical aspects of it. Uh, the fact that uh, countries like Russia have a huge stake in developing this route, and that other countries, perhaps China, are looking for alternatives to avoid certain bottlenecks, whether it's the Suez Canal or other other uh, routes uh, in in the South China Sea, perhaps, and uh, and other issues such as a piracy around the Horn of Africa. Do you see those factors having any impact upon the, the longer-term development of uh, these various polar shipping routes?
0: With the polar shipping routes, no. Uh, I mean, let's let's break this one down. First of all, the Suez Canal is not really a bottleneck. Uh, you can close the Suez Canal, but you will not stop trade. That simply means you're going around the, the southern tip of Africa instead. And again, let's be, be clear here. It is not a problem to go around Africa, not at all. Uh, Again, if I look at this from a container shipping perspective, the container shipping lines sometimes do this on their own accord. If you look at 2015, you had more than 100 container vessels in a short span of time that did not go through Suez. They took the long route around Africa. The reason it was pretty simple, oil prices dropped to a very low level, making fuel cheap. And from a container liner perspective, I will just go with the part where which is most feasible economically, and if it was cheaper to go around Africa, that is exactly what they did. You saw it again in spring of 2020, when the pandemic first impacted and oil prices dropped. You suddenly saw a number of container ships that did not go through Suez Canal. They went around Africa. So the Suez Canal is not a bottleneck. The Suez Canal is a preferred routing because normally it is a cheaper routing. But the moment it's cheaper to go around Africa, that routing is also chosen. So Suez, to start with, is not necessarily a bottleneck. Then you have the geopolitical implications. Now, this is where China has spent several years developing their Silk Road Overland. That's the rail connections. And you have definitely seen a massive growth in the amount of cargo, also containerized cargo, that is now moved from China to Europe on the rail service. And you say, that is very good for the Chinese. It gives them another outlet. But again, here, we need to be realistic. What is the cargo that is now being attracted by rail? Part of that cargo is cargo that used to move on air, because rail is, well, it's slightly slower, but it's also more cost-efficient than air. Right now, there's also cargo that normally would have moved on ships that is moved onto the rail. That's more due to the pandemic uh, operational disruptions than anything else. and no matter how many trains you put on, the amount of cargo you can move on rail is still a tiny fraction of the physical volumes you're moving on the ships. So China is developing alternatives, the overland alternatives, and and it's working out great, but it's just not moving large parts of shipping. Russia, it it clearly is partly a geopolitical uh, issue for them. Could they attract shipping up there? But But as I mentioned, from a major container shipping perspective, it's not an attractive routing. Where I see Russia's interests are, they are developing uh, oil fields and gas fields and what have you up in the northern parts of Siberia, which of course means they need shipping. And you do have shipping services going up there. But I see that as an import-export issue with Russia and not so much the need to have an alternative shipping route
1: let's say we let's say we take this somewhat longer time frame uh, this 10 15 20 year perspective where there's a lot of uncertainty of course uh, with the uh, environmental change climate and uh, melting polar ice what other factors would have to line up for the arctic sea routes and when i say the arctic sea routes i mean not just the northern sea route but there's talk of course of the uh, transpolar sea route that would basically go right across the north pole there's also the, the northwest passage in canada uh what what other other factors besides the environmental change that is – well, I guess it's not completely out of our hands, but that's something that maybe is, is, a, is a bigger picture issue. What other actions that can be taken by countries like Russia, Canada, China, Norway would have to happen for, uh, for Arctic shipping to really um, blossom like has been expected or at least talked about now for about 15 years?
0: Yeah. Uh, that, there's a couple of other aspects that are then important to take into account. Some of the concerns on the shipping lines, because at the end of the day, it's the shipping lines you need to address. You need to address their concerns and make this attractive. And one of the issues for the shipping lines is if you're choosing the Arctic grounds right now, if you think in terms of risk, if something goes wrong, then what? Who's going to come to your rescue? That is still a problematic issue, which is also causing some people to say, well, maybe we don't want to go that way, because what if something happens? What do we then do? What what are the options here for rescuing a vessel? What if our, our engine stalls or, or whatever else have you? So that's one aspect. And another aspect, and I'm sorry, that's not an answer to the question. It's actually an answer to the opposite question. You have, at least on the container side, increasingly different sh- of the major container shipping lines being out very vocally saying they will not use the Arctic sea route. They are saying this on the grounds of potential environmental concerns. Their fear is, if there is a maritime accident, and you can never rule maritime accidents out, doing that in a sensitive Arctic environment, that is just a disaster waiting to happen. So they, they're simply stating outright, no matter how much the polar cap melts, they will not go that way.
1: From a PR perspective in that case. They don't want to be sort of associated with a major catastrophe in, in a sensitive environment. Exactly. Now, you also mentioned Lars, um, the Belt and Road Initiative, uh, China's a big infrastructure play. And there is one aspect of it, uh, that has gotten some, some discussion is this idea of a polar silk route that, um, seems like China and to a certain extent Russia have been, uh, interested in cultivating this narrative. So do you see that as, as more just focused on Resource shipping, the, 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 natural gas and oil. And, or do you see, do you see any potential container shipping aspect to this idea of a polar silk road? Or is it, would it be just rail based in that case?
0: Yeah, you, you can say the, the, the concept of the polar silk route for me appears much more as a, let's call it a geopolitical play because fr- from my perspective, I do not see the good financial business case. I see this more as a play to get more political influence, to potentially get some access to to polar resources. And again, I mean, let, let's be frank here, there there is a geopolitical game over who's going to control the Arctic Ocean once it melts. And that's a sad sentence to say, once it melts, but that seems to be the direction we're heading in. So clearly, there is a great game going on. Who's going to control the Arctic Ocean and the resources in that? And and of course, it's no uh, surprise that China wants to be part of that game as well. But I don't see that there is necessarily the financial incentive on the container shipping side to really pay much attention to this, at least for the next several decades. Once you then start to look a couple of decades out, there is an added uncertainty that makes this very, very difficult to deal with because you are in a phase where container shipping, and for that matter, all shipping, needs to replace the entire global fleet. Uh, There are requirements from the International Maritime Organization on the CO2 emissions by 2050. And in order to meet those standards, effectively what you need to do is by 2050, all vessels need to be carbon neutral. We don't have the technology to build those vessels today uh, at scale, it simply doesn't exist. So how these vessels are gonna look like, what fuel they're gonna use, how they're gonna operate is entirely unknown. And as long as that is unknown, we, of course, also don't necessarily know whether such vessels would lend themselves or not to an Arctic routing.
1: Well, the technology aspect of it is interesting as well. Of course, certain countries really do specialize in building these uh, these vessels, uh, Finland, uh, South Korea. How big of a factor is the technological aspects to this, that uh, the, these future developments that could make? More and larger vessels, um, ice worthy, and um, and potentially minimize some of these uh, potentially catastrophic uh, accidents that uh, that so many people in the industry fear.
0: Yeah, you gonna you say one of the challenges you're faced with is how often would you need to replace, say, your fuel uh, if you if you're developing vessel classes that are carbon neutral but need frequent fueling, that would rule out the Arctic unless you start building fueling stations that are relevant up there and and you can use. But if, on the other hand, you end up with vessels that can go for very, very long distances with fuel that also doesn't necessarily pollute a lot if you actually accidentally spill it, that would change the equation. But right now, we simply don't know. Then, of course, uh, the wild card in that is One of the ways where you could actually build a carbon-neutral fleet, also on relatively large ships, is fine, make them nuclear-powered. The challenge you're going to hit there, and again, here I'm looking narrowly at it from the container shipping perspective, that sounds extremely unrealistic, not from a technological perspective, because surely you can build such vessels. But the problem here is, again, more political. Uh, It is, in many places, highly unlikely that you're going to be allowed to say, let me come into your port with a nuclear-powered ship because of the connotations nuclear power has in many countries.
1: You mentioned, uh, Lars, also a, a, a sort of a consensus between uh, major shipping companies uh, that that have basically flat-out said that they will not use uh, polar shipping routes. Uh, maybe they don't admit that it's for PR reasons, but the fact that they don't want to be uh, held responsible for, for a major accident. What are, is there uh, any variation in this from from? country to country or company to company or region to region i'm thinking particularly of china where the shipping companies are if not state owned they're very much under the influence of of the state and perhaps have other objectives other than just purely strictly economic feasibility they have maybe the more geopolitical aspects uh, and and this other th- longer term thinking that maybe a, a company like maersk might not have
0: you, you can certainly have that argument, but but then you're again down to who makes the decisions. Uh, you can certainly, as a shipping line, decide we are going to use this route. Uh, nothing prevents you from doing that. But you can't necessarily then control, would the customer then want to book on your product? And this is where there is a gradual change. Because keep in mind, the container shipping lines' customers are different than if you have, for example, an oil tanker company or, or an iron ore bulk Container ships tend to move large amounts of goods that go to the actual consumers. The actual consumers increasingly actually do care about the environment. So there might be a significant flashback if retail company X is suddenly shown, well, you are shipping on the Arctic. That might actually reflect poorly on their brand name. That's problematic if you sell directly to consumers. So this matters to the container shipping companies. If on the other hand I'm operating say an iron ore bulker well I'm shipping from a mine somewhere and I'm shipping to uh, a foundry somewhere else and I am very very far removed from the normal consumers and the environmental connotations tend to take on a different like when you're purely in the B2B environment but the container lines uh, apart from the cruise shipping lines the container lines are, are possibly one of the parts of shipping that are the closest the actual
1: consumers. Finally, just to wrap things up, uh, Lars, uh, just to make sure I I sort of get the right perspective here, and I think you've made yourself quite clear, I just want to sort of reiterate it again. So you don't see the short-term or the medium-term, perhaps not even the long-term potential for the Arctic to become a real uh, alternative to the Suez Canal, to shipping around the southern part of Africa, the alternative to the Panama Canal, you don't see any of the various polar routes, whether it's in the Northwest Passage, the the Northern Sea Route, or even the Transpolar Sea Route eventually, as being viable alternatives in the foreseeable future.
0: That's correct, because my my view here is really, what is the economic value of a liner shipping network looked at from the perspective of container shipping lines? And whilst the Arctic routes on paper are shorter, it would force you down a path where you would need to use substantially smaller vessels which would erode part of the economic viability and it would force you to use a route where you are sharply reducing the possibilities to serve secondary markets uh, which is also part of what you do with the uh, existing networks
1: Lars Jensen CEO of Sea Intelligence Consulting thank you very much for joining us here on the political Geopolitics. you really cleared up a lot of things that I think uh, people have been um, anxious to know so thanks very much again for joining us here on the podcast My pleasure, thanks for inviting me.